In today's global economy, quality matters. Benjamin Franklin once quipped, the bitterness of poor quality remains long after the sweetness of low price is forgotten. Quality Matters is here to talk about all things quality. So whether you're looking to improve your business, getting ready for an audit, or dealing with failed inspections, tune in, check us out, then get back to doing work that matters. Hello, welcome back to the Quality Matters uh, podcast brought to you by Texas Quality Assurance, where quality management gets simplified. I'm uh, Kyle Chambers, your host for the uh, podcast today. And today we've got a guest, the uh, king of podcasts in the world, uh, Mr. Mark LaCour. And we are thrilled to have you join us today. Howdy, Mark. Howdy. It's uh, great to be here. I am not the king of podcast world. So. <laughs> in the oil and gas world. So we we're up there, right? Yeah. <laughs> but no, Mark. Uh, Mark and I've known each other for a few years now. He, he's been on the podcast a few times, and and uh, you know, Mark's absolutely great. Really uh, understands the oil and gas world, a lot of the complexities involved, and so we're gonna have a fun conversation today. And this is kind of sparked by an article that I read here a couple months ago. It's it's actually a couple years old from the the start of uh, this whole COVID, uh, you know, pandemic and lockdowns and everything. But what they're talking about in the article is the the role of small business. So we'll, we'll take a look at that here in uh, here in just a minute. But uh, Mark, for those that maybe don't know you yet, give a little bit of background as to kind of who you are, how you fit into this world, and and what your expertise there is. So been in the oil and gas industry for over 25 years and somehow have accidentally managed to build the largest oil and gas podcasting company in the world. <laughs> uh, we have the top 15 oil and gas podcasts. And when I say oil and gas, our roots are in hydrocarbons. We love hydrocarbons, um, but we think of everything as energy. So we also have shows mm -hmm. around the energy transition, uh, clean tech startups, stuff like that. Um, but but just a big fan of the industry, um, you know, it's one of the most important industries to mankind and just love to get out there and tell the stories of, of what we're doing out there. Um, and it's just, you know, thank you for coming on. The, let me come on the show to tell the story once again in another another avenue here. So good stuff, Kyle. Awesome. 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 Well, here I'm going to jump right over and we're going to take a look at this article that I'm talking about, just so we all got kind of some good context. So again, this is something I found here a couple months ago. It's uh, from Small Business and Entrepreneurship Council, but uh, this was written again in April of 2020. So we're talking about kind of early in this this whole mess, long before Ukraine and Russia and the world got as crazy it is today. But it was still pretty crazy then too. Um, and what they're digging into is the role of small business in the oil and gas world. So some fun details like, we work with tons of small companies at Texas Quality Assurance. We, we work with tons of small businesses in and around the uh, oil and gas and energy um, industry. And I know how many folks are small business are in there, but I'll be honest with you. I was even shocked by this. So they're talking, look here for uh, oil and gas, uh, oil and natural gas extraction, you know, the size of firms by number of employees. And for folks listening to this and not watching the video, um, there will be a link to the show notes to the article here. But uh, companies with less than 500 employees make up 98% of the firms in natural gas extraction. And now, Mark, this can't be right. Surely it's Exxon and Shell and BP are like doing everything, right? 
No. So here in the U.S., uh, most of the hydrocarbons, most of the oil and gas that's produced is produced by small independent operators, just like the numbers you have on the board. What's happened, Kyle, is the press likes to talk about Exxon and Chevron and BP and Total, right? Right. <clears throat> but the truth is, when you look at the U.S., most of the production is done by independent operators. Um, it's around 90% of the actual hydrocarbons produced are produced by companies other than the super majors. Now, you go globally, and it's a different story. Um, but there's a whole bunch of things that tie into this, these smaller companies that the general public just doesn't understand. And I got a feeling you and I are going to talk about some of that. <laughs> well, yeah. So... You know, when we talk about oil and gas, you know, there's there's obviously a lot of uh, requirements come along, uh, compliance standards from things like the ISO 9001, the API Q1, Q2 standards, which we've talked about a lot here on the podcast. But then there's no shortage of safety requirements, environmental compliance requirements. But then it goes way beyond into all sorts of different uh bureaucratic issues and uh, regulations that no one has any idea about. So I thought this would be a fun opportunity to shed just a little bit of light onto what all of these regulations, which I think for the most part are, are good, but the impact that they have, not just on Exxon and BP and these folks, but on literally your neighbor next door, either operating or working for one of these small businesses that makes up 98% of the folks out there doing extraction. Yeah, it's um. so what happens is smaller companies, and you and I both know this, you and I both run small companies. Smaller companies, when we have to compete with larger companies with regulations, we're at a disadvantage. We don't have as much capital. We don't have 13 lawyers sitting in a room waiting to, to fight some of this stuff. You know, and at the same time, we got to keep moving forward. We don't have time to mm -hmm. stop and 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 protest or fight. We just have to keep moving. And it it hurts the industry. Now, now don't get me wrong, to your point, there's a lot of rules and regulations that are there that protect the people, the environment. Uh, things like the reservoirs, the aquifers, mm -hmm. all that stuff, all that is super important. But when you have large political organizations uh, like what's, uh, you know, like our current leadership here at the federal government that don't like the industry, what they don't mm -hmm. realize is they're not hurting Exxon and Chevron. No, they're hurting literally people that are paying taxes that live in your local community, that go to your local church. Right. Yep. And it's, 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 you know, and it's nobody ever thinks of that because everybody thinks that the oil and gas industry is run by the super majors. And here in the U S like we said, it's not. It's not. It's not. And, and you know, you've brought this up on some of uh, your, your episodes on. I can't even remember which one of the podcast at this point. But the uh, the oil, the uh, natural gas, when we do natural gas extraction, it what we provide is so much cleaner, higher quality than what you get really anywhere else around the world. Yeah. So this is my famous quote that, um, and, and please no hate mail from the Chinese or the Russians. <laughs> Although actually I'll take it from the Russians right now. Um, <laughs> Um, but, you know, have you ever heard of a Chinese or Russian oil spill? And the answer to that is no. And right. so why? That means one of two things, Kyle. It means either the Russians and the Chinese are better at it than the U.S. and the Europeans, or they don't tell when they make a mistake. The truth <laughs> is they don't tell. Yeah. So when you're looking at the environment, you want the Americans and the European operators if, if it makes business sense to be there first, uh, because we do respect the environment. And if we mm -hmm. do have an accident, we clean it up. We don't just leave it there. Right. Yep. Um, and it's just one of those things that people just don't ever think of. But once you say it, it makes perfect common sense to you. 
Yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. So let's take a look here at a couple more of these, and I, I think you can probably shed some interesting light onto it. So we're talking about uh, uh, drilling. So you would think surely drilling operations have to be the large companies because these are huge pieces of equipment, very complex operations going thousands of feet into the ground. But again, we're looking at folks with less than 10 employees. We're talking about companies like mine, less than 20 folks. These are 70, 80 percent of the uh, the companies employed. And again, less than 500 is 97 percent. So let's talk a little bit about oil and gas drilling, because I think this is sometimes where, you know, this is what people think of the, the oil coming up on the ground, the folks drilling it, which is only a small piece of the entire industry. This is probably where a lot of folks uh, minds go. So how is it that these small companies dominate this sector of the industry? Um, part of it is history. You know, the old wildcatter days where a couple of guys would go, you know what, we're going to drill a well here. Let's see what happens, right? <laughs> um, Chevron and Shell don't operate that way. Um, but part of it is actually efficiencies. So a small, a small drilling contractor is much more nimble than a large one. Now, what, everything mm -hmm. I'm talking about now, I'm talking about on land. It's different when you right. go offshore. Right? Sure. But on land, a small drilling contractor is more nimble. And in the frack fields and in the unconventionals on land, the, the way to be profitable is can you factorize drilling wells? Can you take the same concept Toyota uses to build Corollas efficiently? And can hmm. you apply that to drilling? And a large drilling contractor can't move that quickly, can't right. move rigs, people, equipment. So smaller drilling contractors are more nimble. And so they're they're able to factorize that drilling. But there's a bigger thing going on here, Kyle, and I'm, I'm going to go down the ESG route just a little bit. Yeah, I want no, people to understand it. something. So the large companies in the U.S., so the Exxons and the XTOs and the Oxys and the Chevrons, when they go to drill a well, they don't need money. They have all their own capital. Right. So they're financed internally. These small drilling contractors need cash, need capital, mm -hmm. right? And so what they do is they drill a well, they go in production, and then with those production numbers, they can prove how much hydrocarbons they're extracting from the ground, and that's worth some money. And then go back to the bank, and they can show the bank this so they can borrow more money to drill another well. Yeah, to prove it's it's financially viable to, to extract it. So that access to capital is vital for small independent operators to run. And remember, we mm -hmm. said most of the hydrocarbons come from small independent operators. Well, in the last couple of years with uh, uh, the... Uh, Re the, uh, the emergence of ESG, environmental social governments, a lot of investors have shied away from investing in oil uh -huh. and gas companies. Number one, from the public perception, they don't want to be connected to dirty oil. But number two, and this is actually kind of rightly so, they want to make sure the operator is meeting their ESG goals before they invest money in that. Right. Well, that's caused a constraint in drilling because there's no access to capital. Yeah. So when you go to the pump this week and you're complaining about the high pump prices, <laughs> understand that the investment companies that are trying to follow ESG investment rules aren't investing capital. And that's why the independent operators aren't drilling right now. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and that's a, a good point. And that's actually something, this is a great example of unintended consequences. Um, and we talk about this in, in the consulting side of our business all the time. If you're going to put a procedure in place, you're going to put a policy in place. We know what you're trying to achieve out of it, or goodness, hopefully you know what you're trying to achieve out of it. Sometimes we see that's not the case. Um, but you also have to think, what other consequences are we going to have as a result of putting this in place? So it's kind of funny here. And I'm not saying that ESG is a bad thing. Don't don't take that. It's, we do it's not. It's not. But like anything else, it can be misused. Exactly. Yeah. Is this enormous push on ESG. Well, it, it's almost as though that is geared towards the super majors that folks love to hate. And I'm not saying there's a reason to. I'm just saying it's the way things are. 
But in turn, what it does is it punishes all of these small folks who are doing the lion's share of the work. Um, and, you know, we see that in our industry, in our company a lot because we've got these small folks, mom and pop shops. We're talking about five, 10, 15 employee companies. And they're, I, I've been dealing with it the last two weeks. I had someone call me say, hey, Kyle, we've got an audit coming up. They, they supply equipment for the oil field. And he's like, hey, we, our customer says they got an audit coming up. Here's a checklist they got. And I'm like, man, they're doing an, a Q1 audit on you. Do you have any of this stuff for it? And he said, no. And then he showed me the other stuff they're looking for. And they're wanting copies of their electrical bills, how much water they've used. You're going into all this stuff. And he's just scratching his head like, we just ship y'all equipment. Why do you need this? Um, but it's an unintended consequence of this big push through the industry. And really, folks need to understand that, like it or not, these things are coming. So do you have any advice on how smaller folks can adapt and, and things they need to be aware of that are that are coming at them? Again, most of our audience is, is small business uh, operators. Yeah, I'm right there with you all. Like I said, I wrote a small business too. It's interesting. So, the, you know, the, the big guys can have a staff of EFG experts, of scientists, of lawyers, of people that understand, you know, the federal government, lobbyists, all that. You and I can't, right? So it's really hard for small companies to compete in that arena. One of the things I've seen, Kyle, and when I say lately, I mean, mean literally this year, is I've seen small companies band together. And then take their buy-in power, band it together, and hiring a company to help them with ESG, right? So in, instead That's of them bearing idea. the cost alone, because the yeah. work actually actually it's a good question for you, Kyle, because you're one of the companies that would be doing some of that work. If you had two companies that were very similar and they came to you and they wanted to bundle a price, the work you're doing for company A and B is going to be different, but a lot of it's going to be so similar that there probably is some cost savings, right? No, there really would be. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, so just thinking about. Uh, Again, let's take a mom and pop shop. They're they're going from we've done the work for 10, 20 years, but we really haven't documented much. So we've got what we call our jumpstart compliance. And basically, we're going to go through, analyze your business processes. What are you doing? We're going to write your documentation. We're going to get your policies, manuals in place, do a little bit of training and say, hey, here you go. When you're ready to get certified, give us a call. But this should get you by for now. To do that for two similar companies, I mean, we're probably talking about, honestly, 10 to 15 percent extra effort yeah. on our part. Um, to really customize and tweak it for these folks. So no, it really is. It would be a fantastic, absolute fantastic cost savings if folks were willing to work together towards uh, towards a common goal. Yeah, and so I've seen that pop up lately, which I think, to your point, I think is really cool. I think it's um also part of the gig economy, right? I don't need I don't need an, an uh, phase one environmental expert on my staff at all time. I need him no. two hours a year, right? Mm -hmm. And and so I just think it's a great concept. <laughs> yep. The other thing is um, I would like to see more states help support the small business, including the, the small business in oil and gas, with some of these federal regulations. Uh, the yeah. state of Texas and the state of Oklahoma actually do a pretty good job with that. Here in Texas, our railroad commissioner, and don't get me started on why it's called the railroad commissioner, but <laughs> that's who regulates the oil and gas yeah. industry in Texas. And they actually do a good job with the small operators helping them be able to go to court when needed, like a larger operator, right? Yep. Um, and, and so I, I think that's good too. But bottom line is, as a small business, you just don't have the resources. So no. you have to pick and choose which one of these battles or, or which one of these undertakings you're going to fight. Um, yep. And unfortunately, sometimes you have to go down that route and spend resources, money on stuff that doesn't help your business. Yeah.
Yeah, well, you know, last year we saw a massive uptick in health and safety, right? So we typically do uh, consultate when we do consultation work. It's for the quality management standards. We're talking about nine thousand one, Q one, Q two, but all in the quality realm. Last year we did twice as much work on safety and environmental as we did quality, and ESG was was a big reason reason why because. There's no common ESG metric out there, unfortunately. Um, but if you can show that you've got a quality program, a health and safety, and an environmental program, and then show a little bit about some HR side of things on, on your business, correct me if I'm wrong, you're going to check 80%, 90% of those ESG boxes just by running a well-documented good business. 100%. And not only are you going to check most of those boxes, you're going to be so far ahead of all your competitors. Because I'm telling you right now, most of them, if they have anything, it's paper not filed correctly in some filing cabinet in a warehouse somewhere that somebody's going to have never to seen it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's cool. And then the other thing though, Kyle, from a small business point of view. So we follow a lot of ESG metrics here. We actually track mm -hmm. our CO2. We actually mitigate that. We have a very strong safety component. Now we're a podcasting company. So having a strong safety practice in a podcasting company <laughs> is much easier than the guys out there hitting hammer unions and slinging chains and tongs. Right. Um, but one of the things that I found is it actually runs a more efficient business. So everything we just rattled off sounds like it's an overhead, like it's a, it's a burden to your business. I'm telling you, when you get all this stuff cleaned up and organized and documented, your entire mm -hmm. business is more efficient. It, you're you're selling the work we do for me. Kyle, <laughs> <laughs> not pay me to say any of this. No, it's 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 honestly it's it's the truth. When you document the good best practices that you've learned, it does. It goes a long ways, and these are ways that our smaller companies that are out there can stay competitive with larger folks in the industry. Because I think we all all agree that small business is and has been the backbone of our nation's economy, and even the super majors. How much work does Exxon actually directly do versus, I'm just saying Exxon because it's the first one that comes to mind, but any of these, how much work do they actually do and how much work do they then subcontract out to everyone else? So you'd be surprised how much is subcontract out to other people's for a couple of reasons. One is mitigation of risk, right? Mm -hmm. One is domain expertise. So in Exxon's case, we'll pick an offshore facility for this example exxon does all the exploration and production they do buy some subsurface data from third-party providers their engineers reservoir uh, engineers petroleum engineers then do the calculations to see if the hydrocarbons are recoverable then they go test it so they have to rent a drill ship exxon owns zero drill ships so hmm. they rent one from somebody called like transocean and then they crew it there's only one exxon person on that entire rig he's called the company man right right everybody else is contractors yep they the contractors drill exxon people come back and determine if they want to go in production with that well if it makes financial sense and if they go in production it's another whole drill ship another whole group of contractors that exxon rents to to go in production and then at that point they need to take those hydrocarbons once they separate the water and sand out attach it to an under underwater pipeline to bring it back to shore another group of contractors does that <laughs> so, so exxon is doing the higher thought processes the engineering maybe even the procurement, but everything else is handled through contractors. And it's yep. not just Exxon that does that. The entire industry does that here in the U.S. and in Europe. Now, when you get to different parts of the world where geopolitics are different or there's high risk because of pirates or whatever, then it's a little <laughs> bit different. Yeah, but that, that's a whole other fun conversation. Yeah.
Well, let, let's change gears for just a moment now. So obviously our, our gas prices are skyrocketing. Things are going crazy. There's tons of information back and forth. Not looking to get into the too much of the political side here. But, you know, when folks look at the, the prices on the gas pump, you know, is it do we need to blame all these small companies that they're they're trying to jack up the rates is is uh, Exxon and BP and Shell? Are, are they just trying to trying to ramrod everyone and squeeze as much out of them as they can? Or maybe it's just a little more complex, way more complex. So first thing, Exxon and Shell own no gas stations in the U.S. The retail gas station in the U.S. is the least profitable part of the value chain. So all almost all the super majors have gotten out of owning gas stations. And you go, Mark, I've seen Exxon and Shell gas stations. That can't be right. <laughs> They're branded Exxon and Shell. They're not owned by Exxon and Shell. They're owned by somebody called a jobber. A convenience store in the U.S. makes typically fifty dollars or $60,000 a year in profit. And so somebody in your neighborhood owns two or three of these convenience stores, maybe more. He's called a jobber, and that's enough money to make a living. So when you get when you want to protest and not buy your gasoline from Exxon or Shell gas station, you're really hurting the neighbor. Exxon and Shell could care less, right? Yeah. They, they, they make no money off of that whatsoever. And the reason pump prices are high, and it's really funny, Kyle, trying not to talk politics, but isn't it funny <laughs> that one of the one of the times that both sides can agree on something is when pump prices are high? <laughs> well, we're all hurting about equally there. But the reason pump prices are high is, is complicated. The biggest thing is our... Our existing administration have put a lot of rules and regulations in place in the last couple of years to curtail production of the U.S. oil and gas industry. Right. Well, we, we come out of the pandemic and consumption is actually growing faster than supply. Yep. So high pump prices were coming anyway. And then we had this little thing in Russia and Ukraine that pulled all those Russian barrels off the market. So the co countries that used to buy Russian barrels of oil still have to buy oil. They're just buying yeah. it from someplace else. The, the demand has changed. Supply. Yeah. This is why you're paying this much at the pump. Yep. So next time it's time for you to vote, think about this experience at the pump and see if you like this experience. If you do, you vote yeah. one way. And if you don't, you vote the other. No, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you're talking about the curtailing production here in the U.S., which I guess might make sense if our consumption had gone down already. OK, we'll, we'll curtail some production. But when you talk about curtailing production, again, we're talking about your neighbor. That 100%. is losing his job or losing opportunities like it, it's it is exactly what you said. It's the folks that, you know, go to school with our, you know, the parents of our kids, friends. It's the folks sitting next to us in the pew at church. It's, you know, it's it's literally our next door neighbor. And, and Kyle, it's you and I are going to be OK. I mean, we, we may complain about what we're cost to fill up our cars and we may not go out to eat as often or whatever. But a lot of our poor people in this country are going to literally have to make a choice between feeding their kids and mm -hmm. putting fuel in their car to go to work. Nobody yeah. should ever have to make that choice. No, no, yeah. I, I completely, completely agree. And, you know, this is one of the things where, you know, again, I sometimes get a little frustrated because we have there's so many negative unintended consequences of what and i'm going to give everyone the benefit of the doubt of what best efforts and best plans and best hopes and dreams are they're so often neg unintended negative consequences so anyone listening to this here that's what i'm really hoping you get out of this is that i truly see 
some fantastic opportunities on the horizon for our small businesses that are out there working in this industry or working, I say, even parallel to the industry because we work with a lot of machine shops. They're working for oil and gas one day. They're doing aerospace the next. A number of them are trying to get into medical devices. In any case, kind of these, these parallel industries. There really is a lot of good opportunity to make improvements to your business, to meet these requirements that everyone else is really struggling with. So once the world unravels some of the craziness we're going through, which it's always managed to unravel itself, um, there's really a lot of fantastic opportunity here if folks can simply document the good best practices they have, kind of like what you know what you were talking about there, Mark. So maybe we can finish up on that point. You know, I know y'all uh, had an ESG podcast. It's just a hugely popular topic that you guys have right now. So how can some of these smaller companies and businesses make the most and make the best out of these ESG requirements getting pushed down rather than it crippling them, how can they use it to their benefit to, to stay competitive and, and to jump ahead? Yeah. So you know how I mentioned earlier that capital is constrained because the investors are worried about ESG. <clears throat> I will say this much. If you were an investor in Halliburton stock literally a year ago today, it's it's grown in value over a hundred percent. Really? Yeah. So so the investor community, even though it has this ESG component that they're they're concerned about, they're looking at the loss of returns because they haven't invested oil and gas. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of them are going to take ESG and park it on the bookshelf just temporarily so they can make <laughs> the return. The other thing that's coming is I think we're in a 10-year super cycle for oil and gas. Even with all these government regulations, I think our industries go boom for the next decade. But to get back to answering your question, one of the best things you can do is literally, because there is no guidelines, because ESG means different things to different people, Pick mm -hmm. a couple of big things, right? Pick your safety record. Uh, pick the way you measure your impact to the environment. There's a lot of online tools if you're worried about uh, CO2 that will help you estimate your CO2 emissions as a company. Yep. And then you can turn around and mitigate it. So we do that here at OGGN. Kyle, it costs me $25 a month. Mm -hmm. I'm paying a company that plants trees on OGGN's behalf using a, a, a ratio based upon our company's CO2 emissions, and that includes things like air travel, so I can document and show that I am net zero. Now, do I believe that's a big deal really for the planet? No. Right. <laughs> but is it something that will help me do business uh, uh, far ahead of my competitors because I know none of them are mitigating their CO2? Yes. And if I'm wrong about its impact to the environment, I'm covered. Right. Yeah. So, so it, it, you, by using some modern technologies and tools, um, you can still accomplish some of the things that, that just a few years ago, a smaller company couldn't. And then yeah. we talked earlier about finding people that are not competitors, but that are in the same space that you are and banding together, you know, go on LinkedIn, find a company that, that is close to what you do. Um, and then reach out to them and go, look, do you have the same problem with, with water quality? Or do you have the same problem with documenting uh, training hours or whatever? Yeah. And if you come together, then you can approach somebody like your company, Kyle, and go, look, we have a package here, which then allows me and the other company to both afford something that normally we couldn't afford. I, I think, I mean, taking the potential gains for my company out of the equation. I think it's a fantastic idea. Um, I mean, I would absolutely love to be able to jump in and partner with someone and say, hey, let's let's share the cost on this and both reap a reward that neither one of us could have reaped anyways. Right. And I know some people are saying, well, Kyle, doesn't that mean I need to help my direct competition succeed? Yes, that's not a bad thing. Competition in a marketplace 
is not a bad thing. That drives innovation, that drives new ideas. And I'll be honest with you, we do tons of work with other consultants. Um, we've got one right now. We just did a job for him last week, and he's doing another one for us next month. There can be a very reciprocal relationship here. Yeah, if you get to know your competitors, there's probably one or two spaces that you really are fiercely competitive on. You'd be surprised that the rest of it you're not. Yeah. And so you can actually help each other. You know, there's hundreds of other oil and gas and energy podcasters out there now. We were the first. But I see none of them as competition. They're they're like right. family, right? Yeah. We're all trying to do the same thing. And so I, I give a lot of help away because it makes me feel good to help other podcasters. Mm -hmm. So so to your point, yes, even look at maybe talking to your competition and partnering up on stuff if it makes sense. No, I think I think this is this is all all great stuff. So, uh, Mark, I, I'm I'm really glad you, you came onto this. You got some really fun, fascinating insights. And while Texas Quality Assurance, we we've got you know the where is it the little pump jack on on the logo because that's kind of our our roots from where we started. But we're not an oil and gas company. I, I'd say probably forty percent of our our customers are in that space. But we work directly with small business, and, and that's that's our focus. And Small business is what dominates so much of the work done in this industry. So really, really appreciate you coming on here. Any uh, any final thoughts or uh, words of encouragement for folks out there? Yeah, so everybody in the industry, we've, we've been through hell in a handbasket the last seven years. Amen. Um, it's coming back, and it's coming back strong. And the even our pol political belief system here in Europe cannot withstand market forces. So, you know, everybody out there that has, has, has struggled and, and ground to, to literally to, to want to just to quit. Don't <laughs> we're in a good place. <laughs> the, like I said, I think we're never Hang on your super cycle. Um, you know, there's so much new technology and new processes coming in the industry. It's an exciting time to be in the industry. Yep. So um, I know pump prices are higher, right? But th that will all, like Kyle said, that will all fix itself soon. Uh, yep. Just keep turning it to the right, and we're all in a good place. No, awesome, awesome. Thank you, Mark, for uh, for coming on. Very much appreciate it. And so, give me a second here. We're on a little new setup, so I got to find the right button to push. So, yeah, basically, if you have enjoyed today's show, if you find some value in what we're doing, hopefully a little bit of encouragement, some ideas on how you can improve your business and stay more successful, be sure to subscribe and comment, review the podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify. We're even on Audible now. I bet you didn't know that Audible has podcasts. they got tons of them out there. So we're even on Audible. And if you want to support Texas Quality Assurance and the work that we're doing, check us out on the website, texasqa.com. Find us on LinkedIn. Find me. I'm Kyle Chambers. Comment. Let's talk. I'm happy to answer any questions you have. Number one concern is helping our small business uh, companies out there, driving quality and making certain that this is something that is a value in and out of the workplace. Y'all have a great day. Thank you much.